you were on your deathbed, would you kick yourself on the butt because you didn't try that? That's how I felt about freelance writing. I would be really disappointed in myself. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a business leader whose life was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by MTI, or Maine Technology Institute, Norway Savings Bank, and Vistage. As the CEO or owner of a small or mid-sized business in Maine, You've got the weight of the world on you. But what if you didn't have to go at it alone? What if you could journey with an elite team of peers who've got your back and an experienced guide who knows the lay of the land? With that level of support, how far could you go? For more than 60 years, Vistage, the world's leading executive coaching and peer advisory organization, has been helping leaders reach new heights. Learn more at vistage.com. That's V-I-S-T-A-G-E.com. Welcome, MainBiz listeners. This is Andrea Tetzlaff with the MainBiz podcast team. Today, I'm going to be talking with Diane Atwood, founder of Catching Your Memories. Diane was a health reporter uh, for years with local news stations in Maine, and she found her passion in telling people's stories. She started blogging and podcasting, which allowed her to continue bringing important stories to her followers. However, when Diane attended a conference in 2018, on aging in rural America, her focus shifted to really telling stories of older Mainers, and she learned some surprising lessons along the way. So today I'm going to talk with Diane about why that conference had such an impact on her um, and really instigated her to start her business and why it is so important to document these stories of aging Mainers. So welcome, Diane. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Can you give us a little bit, um, tell us how you started your career? Well, out of high school, which was back in 1965, I went into x-ray technology school at May Medical Center. My my favorite uncle was a radiologist, and I thought, I'd like to work near where he is. And so I went to that school for two years, and as part of our training, we had to go to the radiation therapy department treating people with cancer. And I just felt a strong connection and was fortunate enough to get a job at Maine Medical Center as a radiation therapist and assistant to the physicist, helping to plan the doses of radiation, which is a totally different use of your brain matter. Sure. It was good, yeah. Um, I really loved that. I did that for nine years. So for nine years you were at Maine Med and then, um, and then you went back to school after that? Well, I had an enormously wonderful opportunity. Uh, One day, I can remember it very well, I got a pamphlet in the mail from St. Joseph's College in Standish, and they had started offering a brand new program that was just for people who were in the field of radiology and x-ray technology. And I could go there for two years and get a bachelor's degree. And for the last several years, I really wanted to be able to go to college, but it just wasn't feasible. So what happened was that um, they gave me credit for my years at the hospital in the field. I had to take a proficiency exam. And then all I had to do was take electives. And I thought, well, I'm in the medical field, of course, I'm going to take science related electives. Well, I hated the science courses. They were hard (laughs) for me. However, I loved the English courses. I loved 
uh, writing and researching, doing term papers, philosophy classes, all of that. And so I switched my my um, concentration from science to English. What was it about the English classes that really spoke to you? Oh, because my brain was always filled with ways I would tell stories. <laughs> or even, you know, on a term paper, I loved doing the research and then having all of that information at my fingertips and having to organize it all so that people could understand it. So you were yeah. a storyteller from the start. But I didn't I didn't know it. I just knew that I liked it. And when I graduated, I thought, what could I do? Maybe I could be a stringer for a newspaper or something. I mean, I didn't have a clue. Yeah. What I could do with it. But I just um, I realized I didn't want to stay in the field. I had loved the field while I was there of um, radiation therapy. I actually applied for two jobs. And um, when I was turned down for the first one in St. Louis, I couldn't get a job here in Maine because I was the only person doing what I was doing in the state of Maine at that time. I was an assistant to the physicist. I said they're called dosimetrists. And um, nobody else was doing that. So I had to find a job out of state. Went down to St. Louis for an interview, didn't get the job and was so relieved. It was like weights lifted off my shoulder. Well, that should but, tell you something right there, right? <laughs> that was a huge clue. But I, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So what I did was I went solo to Europe for about six, six or seven months and you know traveled around and um, came back and still didn't know what I wanted to do. But um, I did get a job as a researcher for an organization called the Public Interest Research Group, um, PERG, and it was through the University of Southern Maine. And it was for a consumer center and, they, and I was the researcher. So I wasn't what you call the world's best consumer, but I really loved the research part. And um, through that job, I got to meet consumer reporters and regular reporters at the local television stations because they would come over to interview us on consumer issues. And um, I remember it was a funded job, so only lasted for a year. And uh, so I was faced with, well, what am I going to do next? And I had become friends with a reporter, John Donvan, at uh, Channel 8. And I said, boy, you know, looks like it would be fun to work in television. I, I don't own a television. I don't watch television, but it looks like fun. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, he'd heard that there was going to be that the news director wanted to hire a consumer reporter and why didn't I try out for the job? So this was probably 1979. And um, so I did a little research to find out, well, what do you do when you're applying for a job at a television station as a reporter? And so I wrote up this fine looking script for a story. And I also contacted an agency, I do not remember the name of it. Um, I had through some connections, I had been asked to do a videotape for a senior citizen facility or organization about unit pricing. And uh, so they videotaped me walking through the aisles at a grocery store, just explaining about unit pricing. To this day, I've never seen the video, uh, but I got in touch with the person who directed it and asked if he would send that video to the news director at Channel 8 because I was trying out for a job. Well, I got the job. and <laughs> So it I must think, have been a good video, even though you've well, never seen it. Well, what they told me was that uh, they'd had never had anybody 
interview for a job who could walk and talk for such a long period of time without making any major mistakes. <laughs> you could never get a job as a television reporter these days like that. You need, a, you need a degree. So I was very fortunate. I had no clue what I was doing, but I got strong on the job training. And a year later, I was hired by Channel 6. And I had met a lot of those reporters there and really liked them. So you move from channel eight to channel six. And, and so what type of stories are you telling as you, when you start with channel six? Consumer related stories. I was their consumer reporter. And so what does that mean? Oh, that just means like um, warning people about scams out there, giving tips on how to be a good consumer, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it wasn't long maybe a year or so, when we got a new news director and uh, Jeff Marks was his name, and he decided that he wanted to establish beats for certain reporters. And the first beat that he wanted to establish was a health beat. And so I hightailed it right into his office. I actually think I was on maternity leave at the time. So my infant and I hightailed it into his (laughs) office. (laughs) And I said, I want that beat. Um, And here's why. I I have a background. I understand the language. Um, Even though I no longer work in that field, I love the field of medicine. Let me try it. So he let me try it. And it took maybe another two two years to really establish the beat. Because when you are a reporter in a newsroom, if there's a story, they send you on that story. But my news director had given me permission to say, is there somebody else that can go on that story because I'm the health reporter. And it took a while for that to settle in, um, but um, it may be a year and I was the health reporter and um, that became you know, my, my beat and very proud of it. Did a lot, I think a lot of good stories. I've heard from people who've said that some of the stories I told actually saved their lives or somebody else's oh. opened their eyes. Yeah. That's great feedback to hear. I got a letter from a lady maybe 10 years after I had done a story about breast self-examination. She told me she had been in her 30s and she heard me give this report and she just thought, well, I'm so young, but why don't I do it anyway? And she found a lump and she had early stage breast cancer. Wow. And she said if she hadn't heard that report, that never would have occurred to her. And right. so she said, you know, that saved her life. So. And, and how long were you with um, CSH doing doing this health re- health reporting? 23 years. Wow, that's a long time. It's a very long time. <laughs> and so when you left, where did your career take you after that? It took me to Mercy Hospital. Okay. I heard, I heard through the grapevine that Mercy Hospital was looking for a manager of marketing and public relations. And I loved what I did as a reporter, but um, you know, after 23 years, sometimes you think, is there something else I might do? And the job at Mercy spoke to me because I'd always had a really good connection with them, with the Sisters of Mercy, because I went to St. Joseph's College, which is St. Sisters of Mercy. Sure. And I thought I would really love to have that job telling the, telling Mercy Hospital's story. So I applied for it and I got it. And um, it was a little scary because I felt like I didn't have the experience and I was going what we would call to the dark side. You know, as a reporter, you report the news and then suddenly you're going into a profession where, you know, you're begging reporters to tell your story. So 
Um, but I, I talked with a trusted friend of mine who was in the healthcare business as a marketer, and he showed me that you can have transferable skills. He, he made me realize, you know, you, you can't look at yourself like with tunnel vision. You have to think about what it is that you've experienced and accomplished in these 23 years. You know how to talk to people. You know how to tell stories. You know, give yourself a break. You'll define. When you when you left Mercy, how long did you stay at Mercy? I was at Mercy for nine years. Okay. And I had planned to retire. Yeah. Oh, okay. So when you left Mercy, your, your plan was retirement. Well plans changed. When I arrived at Mercy, my plan was, I'll stay here until it's time to retire. Um, but but things change, and um, Mercy was going through a whole lot of changes, and it just didn't feel like a good fit anymore. And uh, so I started thinking, what else could you do, Diane? You know, you're 64 years old, and um, so probably 3.30 one morning, I thought, you know what you want to do. You've always wanted to be a freelance writer. This could be your opportunity. Why don't you market yourself as a freelance medical writer? And I was afraid, but I have this sort of like a mantra. If something crosses your, your brain, your line of vision speaks to you, ask yourself this question. If you were on your deathbed, would you kick yourself on the butt because you didn't try that? Yeah. And that's how I felt about freelance writing. Yeah, I would be really disappointed in myself. So um, I marketed myself as a freelance writer. My daughter helped me out. She was in graphic design school. She told me, you need a blog, mama, because <laughs> that's how people will be able to find you. And it serves as a website and you can practice your writing. I didn't have a clue what a blog was. But she set me up with one, and we named it Catching Health. That was her idea. And the moment I started writing it, I knew that I had found something else that I could love because it blended both of my my careers in television and as a marketing person. So um, with a name like Catching Health, I'm assuming the focus of your blog was around health. Yeah. I was... Um, my tagline is health reporting that makes a difference. I approach it as a health reporter and do, go out to interviews all the time, do the research and mm -hmm. try to write blog posts that are really meaningful, you know, that could change somebody's life. So having the blog worked, I did attract some clients, but after maybe a year or so, I realized that I loved writing the blog way more than I liked writing for other people. So I kind of phased out my clients and focused totally on the blog. And eventually I got some really good, strong sponsors. And so I was able to earn a living from writing the blog. And then a couple of years ago, I added a podcast to it. I would interview experts on related health issues, on various health issues. So, and then in 2018, you attended a, a conference in Portland that was sort of focused on um, aging and loneliness in rural America. So how did that kind of shift? It sounds like that really kind of shifted entirely what you were doing to a really, I don't know if I would call it new focus because it was still health related, but certainly shifted the focus of, of who you were interviewing and what stories were being told. 
That's right. I would say going to this conference was a pivotal moment for me. Um, it, it happened in August of 2018. I, it was a busy day, I remember, and I have a co-working space down in Monument Square. And um, I had gotten a pitch from somebody about this conference on isolation and loneliness among older people. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I don't know if I'll have time to do it. Well, it was a gorgeous day. And I thought, well, why don't I walk? I had to go up Congress Street to the Eastland Hotel and I'll catch the tail end of this conference and maybe can make a blog post out of it. Well, so I interviewed Donato Tremuto, who at the time was the CEO of Tivity. And um, he told me that he felt that loneliness and isolation was a, a chronic health issue in our country. And that it was particularly so among older people in rural areas. And of course, most of Maine is rural areas. And, um, and he told me some stories about his own parents. And it got me to thinking about relationships that I had with older people, older people that I had interviewed. I this 102-year-old fellow that I used to do stories on when I was a reporter. And I remember the last interview that I did, he was in a, in a nursing home assisted living facility recuperating from his second broken hip. He was 102 years old. And I asked him, first of all, he was healing nicely from his second broken hip. I asked him if he had any friends in this place. And he said, well, no. He said, they're so old here. You can't even have a conversation <laughs> with him. He was 102. You know, so I have, in my past, I've had a lot of encounters, positive encounters with older people. So Donato got me thinking about that. I go back into the main room where the conference is, and all the participants are being tasked with finding ways to be able to break through this isolation and loneliness that is rampant among especially older people. Think outside the box. What can you do to foster communication? And I was sitting there, I had this aha moment. And I thought, wait a minute, Diane, you've got a podcast. You've got, you've got a vehicle. Why don't you go out and start interviewing older people? meet with them in person and, and hear their life stories. And maybe it's not gonna change the whole dynamic, but maybe you can make a difference in somebody's life because everybody's got a story. So I thought that's what I can do. I can ask people to tell me their stories. So Wonderful. I started this podcast project called Conversations About Aging. And then I traveled around the state of Maine interviewing people 60 and older about their lives and what it meant to be getting older. And it, it was phenomenal. That's great. It's, it's so interesting that a chance happening at that conference made such an impact on you to realize how important this was going to be. And, and I, I learned so much from doing those from the people I interviewed and also from their families, because sometimes the people I interviewed didn't tell their families about the interviews. Yeah. So I had one lovely gentleman that I interviewed and um, I asked him if he was lonely. And I thought, I'm sure he's going to say, oh, no, I'm living in this assisted living facility, but they've got so many activities going on and uh, I do them all. So I thought he'd tell me, no, I'm busy, busy, busy. And he said, oh, I'm very lonely because I miss my kids. They're scattered around the country. And when I had my house, they could come and visit me, but it's different living here. So he taught me a lesson not to take for granted a person's situation. 
And uh, maybe a year after I did that interview, I got an email from his eldest son who lived in Texas. And he told me that one of his sisters started doing some genealogy research and put their dad's name in to Google and up popped the podcast episode that I had done with him. They had no idea about it and uh, they all listened to it. And uh, he wrote to tell me that it made a difference in how they were with their dad because they did not realize his loneliness. They thought like I did, that he had lots to do and, and in a way that, you know, they didn't have to worry so much about him yeah. being alone in his house. And so they started as a family looking for ways to reach out to him. You know, it was Interesting. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk with Diane a little bit more about why telling these stories was so important with her and at what point she realized that um, that could become a business. We'll be right back. Mainers have an unrivaled work ethic, an endless supply of ideas, a boundless energy to create, and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before. Which is why the Maine Technology Institute was created to support, nurture, and invest in those qualities and make Maine a place where ideas and people can thrive. To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org. It has been very inspirational for me. It, it has given me a deeper purpose. I feel driven almost by this, and it's really lit a spark, which is exciting. So we're back with Diane Atwood talking about the conference that she attended in 2018, which shifted her storytelling focus from health-related issues to telling the stories of aging Mainers. Diane, you were telling us a wonderful story before we went on break of really kind of not assuming what somebody's story was going to be before you had talked to them. And I'm just curious to hear what what was it um, about telling these stories that really resonated with you? I mean, you've been telling us about how storytelling kind of was your passion your whole life. You found that that um, was something that was really important to you. And so what hit home with you about telling these stories? Well, that it wasn't really me telling those stories. It was me asking these people to tell their stories in their own words. And what I discovered is that the people I interviewed were eager to tell their stories. And I just, I felt this strong sense that it was important. Mm -hmm. Important because, you know, when you read somebody's obituary, for instance, everything's summed right up and you don't really get a sense of who that human being really was. Or mm -hmm. And the same thing, if you visit a loved one in a nursing home, people sit around and they're just in the moment. You know, if they're lucky, somebody will ask them to, to tell me, tell me something about where you grew up or whatever. So we all, we have these stories in us and they, they define kind of who we are, how we got from point A to point Z. I loved being able to go and meet the people in person. I have this one story. I have a billion stories, but this one story about a woman who was a code girl during World War II, and I doubt that many people knew that about her. You know, she's lived her whole life except for her experience in the service in the little town of Cornish, Maine. And, um, but 
I interviewed her at her house and she was she's surrounded by all kinds of memorabilia. She told me these wonderful stories about what it was like to be a code girl and then what it was like to come back to town. She said she arrived back on a train and people asked her what she did in the war. And because coding was a very secret operation, she couldn't tell them. So she could only tell them, well, I was a clerk. That's what I did. And it's only recently that they unlock the secret and you can talk about it but she's 90 something years old and people don't ask her about that story so she was brimming but i assumed that she was lonely because there she was living alone and pretty outgoing talkative individual when i asked her she said oh no i'm not lonely at all she said look at look at all the interesting things i have around me they spark all kinds of memories. And she said, I'm very, very happy. And at what point did you start thinking that potentially this could be a business? Well, only the beginning of this year. I got an email from a friend of mine, Nancy Marshall. She's a PR woman. And she said, I, I've got this lovely woman that I think you should interview for your podcast. And so she gave me the woman's name and I did do the interview. Lovely woman, very energetic and um, inspirational. So after the podcast aired, Nancy got back in touch with me and told me the family absolutely loved that interview. She told stories that they had family hadn't heard of before. Have you ever thought of doing this as a business? She said, not everybody wants to share their story for the public, but I'll bet you a lot of people would love to share their stories for their families. And I had never thought it, but she put the idea in my head and so the business sort of became creating this audio history for families. Right. So I call it catching your memories. And people can hire me to do an interview, a private interview with them. And um, we do them as videotape. Or if you don't want to be videotaped, I'll do an audio interview like a podcast. And um, so we go over the questions that you want to cover. It's a little different than the podcast. I mean, we, the podcast, they weren't quite, they were personal, but this is a different level of personal. So I want to make sure that the story that the person is telling is the story they want to tell. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very sensitive to the stories they want to talk about and the ones they don't want to talk about. So we kind of create a roadmap together. And do you find that the people that you're interviewing are excited to tell you their stories? Yes. I had somebody get in touch with me just the other day who said they'd been thinking about doing this for a long time and they had no idea how to do it. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Or or you might get the adult child of somebody, you know, who hears these stories and thinks, gosh, I should be recording this, but <laughs> I never get around to it or I'm not quite sure how to do it. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I, I wish I had done it. I wish I could still see and hear my grandfather telling his stories. Sure. So there are a lot of people who regret not doing it. So I'm hoping that catching your memories gives them an opportunity so that they don't regret not doing it. It almost sounds to me as you're talking like creating this business has been therapeutic for you, sort of bringing you back to your roots of storytelling. Um, do you find that to be the case for yourself? It has been very inspirational for me. It, it has given me a deeper purpose. I feel driven almost by this, and it's really lit a spark. 
which which is exciting. And as far as my own story, what's interesting is, you know, when you're marketing your business, there are things that you have to do, right? And one of them is social media. So I grappled with, oh, should I start a Facebook page for the business? So I, I started a Catching Your Memories Facebook page, and I've been putting up pictures from my own family that I thought think might resonate with somebody else and uh, tell a story about it. Now, the first one I put up was about my mom. I happened to have a picture of her sitting, and we went out to lunch at Monument Square. All of a sudden, she points up to the Fidelity Building, which is across the street, and she said, I used to be an elevator operator there. I was one of the first elevator girls in the city. And then she said, and every night, the maintenance man would go up into the roof, and he would take the flag down, and he'd let me go up there with him. And I used to love to because I could look down on my city and I loved it. And so I shared that story and it, it has resonated with a lot of people, but it was also a wonderful experience for me to write her little story. And so it just, yes, it has, um, this business speaks to me on many levels. As, as the business stands today, you have the blog and your podcast, which are sort of informational, educational components um, and then the personal interviews which are you know personal connections and memories for their families is that is that sort of the description of how your business stands today that is so i'm still doing catching health uh, i used to post something new five days a week i just post something once a week now mm -hmm. on catching health and i have a newsletter that goes out for catching health once a week and then catching memories is separate I mean, there's a connection, of course. It's a, <laughs> it's a separate business. So we're going to take one last break, and then we'll come back and hear from Diane about some lessons she's learned, both with her own career and, and having this significant shift, and then also from some of the interviews that she's conducted. We'll be right back. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it. A story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. If it sounds like something you want to do, at least give it a try. If you've had a lifelong dream, maybe you can't do it the way you imagined it, but you could think of a way that you could get around it. So we're back with Diane Atwood talking about her businesses, Catching Health and Catching Your Memories. And so Diane, you know, in the beginning, we were talking about a couple of fairly long-term careers that you had, and then you started this business after you essentially had two careers. Um, do you have any thoughts for our listeners who may feel like it's kind of too late to start over for them? October 13th, this year I turned 74. I do not think it's too late to start things. I think you have to know yourself and you have to believe in yourself. And so when Nancy gave me this idea for the new business, I didn't think, oh, I'm too old for this. Instead, I was excited and I thought, okay, how could I do this? How could I make this happen? So my advice is, if it sounds like something you want to do, at least give it a try. If you've had a lifelong dream, maybe you can't do it the way you imagined it. 
but you could think of a way that you could get around it. Maybe, maybe you could do something similar. You just yeah. have to use your imagination. So, yeah, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Find whatever that passion is that drives you, and once you get that passion, you just kind of take that and run with it. I think so, and I think I've been very lucky because I've been in the right place at the right time a lot of times in my life. But you can be in the right place at the right time and not realize that it's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I do want to give myself credit for realizing, oh, okay, this sounds like a fun, interesting thing. I think I could do it. But then taking the step to actually try it. Like right. even becoming a reporter, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But I learned and I learned that it was my passion. And have there been lessons that you've learned from conducting these interviews? Well, I have learned how to be a techie. I built my blog and my new website pretty much all by myself. Mm -hmm. I'm constantly having to figure things out. And hopefully that's going to be really good for my aging brain, that the synapses will continue to be firing. (laughs) The biggest lesson that I have learned is how everybody has a story. And the only way that you're going to learn that story is if you ask somebody. It's a wonderful feeling to be able to give them the opportunity to do that. So the biggest lesson I've learned is that everybody has a story and I'm in a position to be able to ask them and hear them and share them. I think that a huge lesson that I've learned most recently from doing the conversations with older people is not to take people for granted. Now, I knew that anyway from doing interviews all my adult life, but it's especially poignant when you're interviewing an older person and you take it for granted, for instance, with the gentleman who's in the assisted living, taking it for granted that, oh, he must be doing great because he's got so many activities to do. Taking it for granted that somebody who is living alone is lonely because she doesn't see people all the time. So the lesson is that you shouldn't assume, sit down and have a conversation and and find out what really is going on for a person and really connect with them, look in their eyes. And the good thing that you know as an interviewer is when you're interviewing people, you've got to let them talk. So that's another lesson learned. Don't interrupt all the time, just let them talk. And even if they go on, maybe you're the first person in 10 years that's asked them a question, let them talk. I I find to your point as an interviewer, I tend to find that the more you shut up is where you find the interesting stories. It's true. And I I really try hard to think about that when I'm talking to somebody. Let people talk. Let them show you their pictures, their memorabilia. You know, it's just, it's so important. And why is it important for you to ensure that these stories are documented? Because it's it's history. It's, It's our history. It's the history, not just of the individual and the family, But it's the history of our communities, the histories of our country. You know, you weave them all together and you see the threads. And I hear different stories from different people, but you know, you realize that there's a a continuum of sorts. 
know, their stories could be woven together. They all had different experiences, but they were profound experiences. The Day That Changed Everything is a production of Maine Biz. Find out more about this podcast and other Maine Biz media products at mainebiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by MTI, or Maine Technology Institute, Norway Savings Bank, and Vistage. The Maine Biz podcast team includes Donna Broussard, Allison Nason, Renee Cordes, Maureen Milliken, Will Hall, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedenka. Logo and marketing designer is Matt Selva. Subscribe at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Copyright 2021.